0: welcome back to another edition of on the record the daily iowans weekly news podcast where we break down the paper's top headlines from the week i'm your host and co-producer eleanor Hildebrand, and i'm here with our co-producer Haley marks on today's episode we have three special guests We will be chatting with Daily Iowa news reporter Grace Hamilton and politics reporter Lauren White. We will also catch up with Brooklyn Dracy, a projects reporter for the DI, and discuss her story on how the Child Life program is helping patients at the University of Iowa's Stead Family Children's Hospital during the COVID-19 pandemic. Whether you're in the car, at home, or in the classroom, we'd like to welcome you to this Friday, April 9th edition of On the Record.
1: I'm Haley Marks, On the Record's co-producer, and here are this week's headlines. On Wednesday, the Daily Island reported on 10 new cases of COVID-19 on the University of Iowa's campus. As of April 7th, eight additional students and two employees self-reported cases of COVID since Monday, April 5th. As of Wednesday, there have been 3,582 positive coronavirus cases since the 2020-2021 academic year began. In Monday's print edition, the DI covered the University of Iowa offering vaccine appointments to students and staff at its University beginning this week as part of a statewide push to vaccinate students before they return home for the summer. The UI's graduate and professional student government conducted a survey to better understand students' experiences during the pandemic. 90% of the students surveyed reported a decrease in their mental well-being. Two undergraduate students at the UI received the prestigious Goldwater Scholarship, a nationwide scholarship opportunity for students involved in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. A new mutual aid organization has launched to help University of Iowa students receive a communal support. UI Mutual Aid launched its aid request from on March 24th and has received 97 requests in its first week. Students are able to request monetary donations up to $50, as well as services such as rides and tutoring. With women only making up 12% of the police departments nationwide, Recent pushes to diversify departments to better serve the community has called for a more intentional recruitment of women officers. Among the multiple encounters of civilians disrespecting their authority, women in local police departments have seen their gender come into focus inappropriately throughout their careers in law enforcement.
0: At its Tuesday night meeting, the undergraduate student government amended and voted on legislation that would establish a Jewish constituency senator. This legislation was originally voted down, but was reintroduced after an outcry from the student body about the need for Jewish representation on campus. In Wednesday's print paper, the Daily Iowan reported on the state of Iowa seeing an uptick in alcohol consumption following the pandemic. The Alcoholic Beverages Division of Iowa reported that in the 2020 fiscal year, liquor sales increased by an unprecedented 8.2%. The English and Philosophy building on campus is getting new windows this summer, for the first time since the building was constructed 55 years ago. The windows, however, will be inoperable per university standards, leading to professors' concerns about airflow. The paper also reported on the State Board of Regents committee meetings on Wednesday, where the UI requested three facility changes for approval, including spending at least $10 million to replace the windows in the four-year-old Stead Family Children's Hospital. The University of Iowa will prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in its next strategic plan that begins in 2022, Associate Vice President for DEI Liz Tovar told the State Board of Regents during Wednesday's Campus and Student Affairs Committee. Tovar said the UI is embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion into its planning efforts as one of the institution's core pillars. Iowa's Regent universities reported a drop in tenured, tenure-track, and non-tenure-track faculty members in the 2020-21 academic year compared to the previous academic year. The decline in the number of faculty at each university is somewhat parallel with some enrollment declines that all three of the Regent universities have recorded. Governor Cam Reynolds said during a Wednesday press conference that she plans to take either legislative or executive action against the use of vaccine passports in the state of Iowa. A form of proof that some businesses and colleges across the nation are looking at using to ensure that employees and students are vaccinated. The State Board of Regents released the schedule for forums and meetings with the four presidential finalists on campus beginning next week. The State Board of Regents also released the schedule for forums and meetings with the four presidential finalists on the University of Iowa's campus beginning next week. Four candidates will be interviewed by campus, including hybrid online and in-person public forums, scheduled for 3.30 p.m. on each candidate's first of two visit days. And in a release from Hawkeye Sports, the University of Iowa Athletics Department and Iowa Northern Railway Company made the decision to end the beloved Hawkeye Express experience this week. The Express has been in operation for more than 15 years, serving Hawkeye fans for a 10-minute ride to Kinnick Stadium. You can read all these stories and more in the Daily Iowan's print editions on Mondays and Wednesdays or online anytime at dailyiowan.com. Grace Hamilton, a news reporter for the DI who covers lower education for the paper, wrote a story this week about the University of Iowa's undergraduate student government election process that begins this week. Welcome back to the studio, Grace. We are delighted to have you on today. How are you? I'm doing good today. Things are going well. That's always good to hear. And in your story for this week, you wrote pieces about the presidential and vice presidential ticket for the undergraduate student government, or USG, and the students running for constituency senator seats. Can you start off by telling us about the one executive ticket that's currently running and what makes the two candidates different from candidates in past years?
2: So the one executive ticket for USG is made of a team of two candidates, which are Reagan Smuck running for president, Jose Munoz Jr. running for vice president. Um, Smock has been involved in USG for the past three years, but the past two, like, of her terms, she has served as um, in the position of director of academic affairs. Um, Minas Jr. has served in, has not served in USG before, but has experienced working at the Association of Latinos Moving Ahead, as well as serving many different cultural centers at the university. So these two candidates are different from candidates in past years because they both have different leadership experience. And, um, Minas Jr. hasn't even served in USG before, but both uh, both Smock and Minas Jr. see this as a strength um, since he could bring in the leadership perspective of someone who hasn't served in USG yet.
0: Yeah, that definitely is different from a typical year of candidates.
2: And obviously, these
0: executive tickets that lead the undergraduate student government also leads several initiatives within the student organization. What are Smock and UNES Jr. planning to focus on in their tenure as the president and vice president of the undergraduate student government?
2: So Smock and Eunice Jr. have several initiatives laid out in their official pan- campaign guide, which can be found on their campaign social media accounts. But some ones they are particularly focused on is ensuring student vo- voices become more active in the university admin's decision-making process. So that would just be increasing shared governance. Uh, Smock would like to create sustainable programs and has many ideas with that. And one includes a textbook drive where students can recycle their old textbooks and USG can redistribute them for free to other students. Minas um, Jr. says he wants to make it possible for there to be embedded therapists in cultural centers, um, in the university cultural centers, um, so that there are people of color um, around to improve university representation. Um, and so those are just some of their main ones that they really uh, hit on the most, I'd say.
0: Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see how they go about that during a potentially post-COVID-19 semester. And another piece that you wrote for the paper on Monday was about the candidates pursuing seats as constituency senators. What are constituency senators? What seats are there for students to run for? And who are the individuals who are looking to be the next constituency senators?
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, so constituency senator seats in USG serve as a way for constituents of an underrepresented group on campus to have someone speak on their behalf to help implement um, different legislations that could help that group. And so there are nine total constituency seats in USG Senate that are available for constituents of underrepresented groups on campus. uh, But this year, only three people are seeking constituency seats. And uh, So the the three people that are doing that in different groups um, would be Shuan Lee is seeking the first generation seat. And this is the first year USG has ever even had a first generation constituency senator position. Uh, Next would be Monique Nachman is running for the LGBTQ plus seat. And he has held that position for two weeks, actually before he started, before he decided to run for a full term. And now he's running for a full term. Uh, And then Sam Andrus is pursuing the veteran constituency uh, seat. And prior to that, he served as the vice president for the University of Iowa Veterans Association. Um, And through that position came to run for this role.
0: And as you mentioned, not all of these constituency positions that exist will be filled due to students not running for the seats for whatever reason. And also just Tuesday night of this week, a new constituency senator position was opened up for Jewish students on campus. So is it typical for some of these seats to be open during the election season and not ran for? And how will that impact the way the USG Senate works in the 2021-22 academic
2: year? Yes. So that, that's those are all very important questions to ask. Uh, USG elections commissioner Andy Swiston said it's very common for um, many constituency positions to go unfilled. He said that the positions generally just aren't very well advertised in general and that since campaign numbers have overall been down for USG, that this would also reflect in the constituency center positions, too. So the constituency positions are also very busy and can be emotionally taxing for the constituents that are representing groups on campus. Uh, So so then what this means then for USG is that in the 2021-2022 academic year, Um, It could possibly not feature a representative from all the underrepresented groups on campus, which could mean that it wouldn't be as easy for ESG to gather more insight in how they can pass legislation to benefit these groups. Um, So that would be how it would have a um, larger effect on campus, I would say. Yeah,
0: well, thank you so much for being on the podcast this week, Grace. We can't wait to read more of your reporting in the DI in coming weeks. Thank you for having me. Next, politics reporter Lauren White wrote a page story on Wednesday about whether Iowa should be declared a red state or not. Welcome, Lauren. We're excited to have you on for this edition of the podcast. How's everything going?
3: Yeah, hi. Everything's doing really well. I'm glad the semester's almost over, but thank you for having me today.
0: Yeah, we're excited to have you on. And this week you wrote about it being too soon to tell if Iowa will be a red state for good following the state voting for former President Donald Trump, re-electing Republican Senator Joni Ernst, and electing three Republican representatives in the 2020 election. Can you tell us a little about how voters are registered in the state of Iowa and what this means for Iowa remaining a swing state in the future? Yeah, I mean, a lot of
3: the reason why Iowa has kind of this reputation of being a purple or like a swing state is just because when you look at how like voters are registered, most people, like the majority of people in Iowa seem to be registered as like a non party. And so that number kind of swings around as like election time occurs. So then whether like what, whatever's going on that year kind of affects those non-party voters and that's what kind of sways them to vote one party or the other. And then there's a lot like there's a really small chunk of voters who are dedicated to a single party and typically vote along those lines. So right now, um, those non-party like, voters are like that number is kind of going up again just because it's been a little while since the election. And so those numbers will keep going up until the next election rolls around. And then that number will fall again as people kind of pick sides or parties, you know.
0: Yeah. And for this story, you spoke with Iowa Democratic Party Chair Ross Wilburn and Iowa Republican Party Chair Jeff Kaufman. What did they have to say about the 2020 election results and its impact on the future of the two parties in Iowa when it comes to how the state will vote? So
3: basically, since they are both the chairs of their parties, they did kind of respond on their along their party lines of being like, well, my party just needs to work harder next year to really kind of make that change or my party kind of like was better this election round so then that's why we did so well but essentially um both of them really do agree with the idea that Iowa isn't extremely red, nor is it like gonna change blue anytime soon but um the Democratic Party is still pretty optimistic that in a few years like those Democratic numbers will start rising again and like with enough like a promotion and kind of like campaigning they like they do believe that those numbers will change but obviously since trends like have shown so much Republican voting like in the past and like recently the Republican Party is still pretty positive that at least in the for like the foreseeing future <laughs> um, the state will remain pretty red but really both are just kind of spitballing at this point.
0: Yeah, and along with those two partisan sources, you also spoke with University of Iowa political science professor Tim Hagel for this story. What do he say regarding Iowa's future as a swing state in election cycles based on his education and position?
3: Yeah, I mean, he said along the same things of, as far as we can tell, Um, There isn't like any permanent like red state status for Iowa right now. So and because of our like large number of non-party registered voters, that number really is like we have no idea what it will look like next election, next like in 2024, 2022, either of those. And so really he was just saying it'll take several more elections, like especially if those elections go back and forth between red and blue. It'll take several more elections to really kind of feel out what the like state of our like partisan vote will really look like, whether or not we'll remain like purple, whether we'll turn completely red and even like it might might even sound unlikely, but we could turn completely blue. It just depends on those non-party voters.
0: Definitely. And another factor of this story and future elections within the state and across the country is the COVID-19 pandemic and Iowa's approach to the virus and its mitigation. What did your sources say about the impact the pandemic will have on the 2022 election cycle and other elections further down the road? Yeah, I mean, one thing that both parties really agreed on
3: was the pandemic kind of put a lot of different Iowans kind of into this box of whether or not they want to reelect um, Reynolds in 2022, because both parties kind of agree that you either liked how she handled the pand- pandemic or you don't. And so that like in 2022, people will still be thinking back on that and whether or not they agreed with how she handled things or they don't. And so um, even like Republican lines are being drawn between whether or not she kept the state open up enough or she should have, kept it more open and obviously like Democrats have their opinions on her as well so that is kind of the biggest effect that I think the election really will have on the 2022 election as well as a lot of people will probably um, vote more absentee like just like they did this year just because a lot of people really liked voting that way a lot of people really liked voting early and so I think these are trends that'll kind of keep up but for the most part a um, a lot of these experts really said that Other than kind of looking how um, Reynolds handled things and how they voted, um, a lot of these issues that are being presented right now will, like, tend to be in their, like, forethought at the voting booth in 2022. But, of course, like, each individual person experienced the pandemic differently, so how they kind of remember it in the next year, year and a half, like, when the election cycle kind of rolls back around will... um, really just kind of affect how they vote.
0: Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Lauren, and sharing your story with us. Hopefully we can have you back again sometime this semester to chat more about your work. Yeah, thank you for having me. Next, we have Daily Island Projects reporter Brooklyn Dracy here to chat about her story on how the University of Iowa's Stead Family Children's Hospital is making sure patients can have a life inside the hospital during the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome, Brooklyn. We're excited to have you on the podcast for the first time this semester. How was your week then?
4: It's been really good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah.
0: And for this story, you wrote about how the lives of kids and teenagers who are staying in the University of Iowa's Stead Family Children's Hospital are changing during the pandemic. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what the day-to-day lives of some of these patients look like and what extra precautions they have to take during the COVID-19 pandemic?
5: Yeah. So pre pandemic, um, for any kid who was living inside the hospital, um, many of them can't leave the hospital, but they were free to roam around their rooms, go to different activity spaces, um, interact with other patients in between their procedures and other tests they needed done, and um, have visitors do all sorts of things. But now during the pandemic, um, patients are confined to their rooms, they're very isolated. Um, there's very rare occasions where they're allowed to leave, um, unless they're going to a procedure or they might get an occasional walk around the floor. Um, but no one's going outside. Um, patients are not interacting with each other. And when entering a patient's room, um, everyone has to at least wear a mask and gloves, um, if not full gear.
0: Yeah, and alongside all of those interpersonal changes, have there been any policy changes during the pandemic when it comes to who can visit these patients and how patients interact with those visitors?
5: Yeah, in the children's hospital specifically, right now only parents or guardians can visit um, patients. So both your parents are allowed to come in if you're a patient in the hospital or your guardians, um, but siblings aren't allowed to visit and no other family members or friends. So um, patients are utilizing a lot of virtual options, you know, Zoom, FaceTime and stuff like that in order to talk to people outside the hospital.
0: No, it's good that they have those virtual opportunities to stay connected. And during all of these changes, Child Life at the Hospital, which is a program that focuses on assisting the children in their care, is continuing to engage with patients and help them and their families cope with everything that's been happening during the pandemic. Can you tell us a little bit more about Child Life and what they are doing to provide resources for patients and families right now? So Child Life is a program
5: in the hospital um, that employs a number of specialists and other care members, including teachers, um, different types of art and music therapists, all uh, with the goal of helping patients and their families cope with life inside the hospital and stressors that come along with the patient's illness. Uh, So they do this primarily through play, they'll interact with patients and their siblings, other family members in uh, different sorts of activities, arts and crafts, um, really catering that to the individual kid to make sure that they're actually having fun in what they're doing while also helping them speak through any emotions they have, learn good coping practices, um, such as uh, learning a breathing exercise so you can regulate your breathing during something like a blood test or another procedure. So all of this is just with the goal of making these families' lives as easy as possible while they're staying in the hospital. And so right now, a lot of what they have to do is virtual. In terms of individual um, face-to-face work with patients, uh, they are still able to do that. Child life specialists can enter the patient's room. They can play with them, interact. I spoke to um, a patient there, um, Shane Mulnick, he's 17. Um, He's actually waiting for his second heart transplant and he's been in the hospital since October. And um, he has child life specialists come by his room almost every day um, to um, hang out with him, uh, play games, make things. Um, Him and child life specialist Lisa Miguel just created a painting and they're working on a music video where Shane gets to rap different Eminem songs So they're really catering these to their individual patients within the parameters of what they can do right now. Like uh, Miguel still has to wear a mask and gloves whenever she's in the room, but they are able to do that
0: kind of play with patients. Yeah, definitely. And as you mentioned, you spoke with a few child life specialists as well as a musical therapist who's in the child life program. How are their lives and their work changing to better accommodate and assist these patients at this time while they go online?
4: Yeah, so um, like I mentioned, um, there are some things that child life specialists um, are having to work around, such as being geared up mask gloves when entering kids rooms. Uh, There are certain um, activities that they can no longer do with patients. They can't bring patients to activity rooms and such can't share uh, tools or crafts or games or anything like that with other patients unless they can be sanitized. So they have been limited some. Um, Miguel said one of the things in her toolbox that she's really missed is using bubbles to help kids learn how to regulate their breathing. Um, she can't blow bubbles now um, because she needs to wear the mask and she doesn't want to spread particles around. And uh, music therapist, uh, Kristen Nelson, uh, she's always used music and singing to engage with kids um, and help them cope, but uh, she can no longer sing with patients. She's the only one that's allowed to sing now, and she has to sing in a very quiet volume. They can't play music instruments together, such as like flutes or trumpets or anything like that, because that, that spreads particles around in the air, uh, so they have to, you know, do that, um, but one thing that Nelson has been able to do during this pandemic is um, start a virtual um, music session over a TV uh, channel. And I'll, I'll speak more on that later, I'm sure, but she's able to teach kids how to play ukulele um, and each kid gets their own little ukulele and they learn from their rooms while she plays along on the TV. So that's one way that they've kind of been changing up their
0: practices. Yeah, they've definitely gone through a significant amount of changes over this time. And another part of the patient experience at Sted Family Children's Hospital, as you mentioned earlier on, is being around other patients and interacting with these people face-to-face, whether they have shared experiences or they know people who have shared experiences. How have group activities changed during the pandemic, and what does that interaction look like nowadays?
4: Yeah, so patients are not interacting with each other face to face right now. That's not happening. It's just not safe. Um, and uh, Shane Molnix, the patient I spoke to did say that's one of the things he misses the most is socializing with other patients, his peers, fellow teenagers in the hospital, and they just, they cannot do that right now. Um, so to To adapt, uh, Child Life has created a whole Child Life channel, basically, on the closed circuit television within the hospital. And they do programming every single day. Um, They'll go through arts and crafts, play bingo, Jeopardy, all kinds of things that let kids interact with the Child Life specialist and maybe even other members just virtually. They can call in. If they have an answer on Jeopardy, they can call in to the TV station from their room and say their answer and interact in that sort of way. And that helps a bit with the isolation and the monotony of day-to-day stuff. And like I mentioned, Nelson has been leading people through music sessions uh, throughout this. And so that's that's really how they've had to do it so far because it's the only way they can interact with each other.
0: Yeah, well, it's good that they have those technological resources and are able to use them to, to chat and to stay connected to one another. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Brooklyn, and sharing your story with us. Hopefully we can have you back sometime again this semester to talk more about your project work. Yes, thank you guys so much for having me on. Thanks for listening. Follow The Daily Iowan on social media and check our website for breaking news updates and the latest COVID-19 related news. We'll be back next week with another edition of On The Record.